Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Mark and Brendan. It is the week ending the 15th of December 2017 and it will be the Christmas holiday soon and we are getting very, very excited for our Christmas special, um, which knowing Mark and I will probably go for two hours of podcast when we do that one. So um, hopefully you look forward to that. Maybe um, think about listening to that on Christmas Day after you've had a few beverages. Um, a few announcements, the usual ones, um, vetgurus.com, our, our website, have a look there. Um, the exciting thing with our podcast is you'll see a new tab on that web page there saying help us or support us um, and what we would like people to do is throw us a bone so send us some money um, well not really well maybe um, how about thinking about donating a little bit to help cover some of our costs um, it probably costs us about four or five hundred dollars a year um, to set up the the recording and the website and also um, the hosting service for us. So it would be good if we got a little bit of that money back and and, and um, managed to um, help us keep going into the future. I mean, we love doing the podcast so much anyway that we'll do it regardless and we'll foot the bill for it. But it would be good if we had the odd supporter or patron. And um, if you look on our website and look for Help Us, um, it will have a link towards patreon.com um, and on there we have our own little page on patreon.com and you can become a supporter and there's different levels of support that you can provide the 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 lowest one but probably the best one is called the bug so they're all sort of animal based so have a look on there um, you might have a bit of a laugh on it and um, um, the bug you can support it by just giving us one dollar um, one dollar a month um, is all we're asking for um, so it would be great and um, we've got a, a grand total of zero supporters so far so um, maybe we'll get one one day so have a look at that that would be great um, hi to all our um, um, our listeners in Singapore this week um, Singapore's down climbed up a little bit mark to number four on the list of um, the the countries of our um, subscribers there so um, I think we've got um, 30 or 30 or so in Singapore that so that's fantastic so um, keep mentioning us to your friends to your vet students to your vet um, colleagues and your vet nurses slash um, vet um, technicians so Gee, we've got a lot of news here um, this week, Mark. I think we've got six or seven items to talk about in news. So I think um, before we get on to our main topic, um, we'll probably only have 10 minutes or so for our main topic. So let's get into the news. And I'll do the first one, Mark. And um, I know I haven't told you about any of the news items that I had. And we had a bit of a laugh um, um, from some of our subscribers and, um, and listeners um, about the Jonathan the Tortoise that we spoke about a couple of episodes ago. Um, this one's probably not very laughable, but um, I found it quite interesting. And I think it was from the Royal College of um, Veterinary, um, the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons in in London. This um, link was. Um, I'll post it on our show notes. But the title is "Vets Save Lions from Illegal Zoo in Bulgaria." And um, I'll just read some of the text from it. An urgent rescue mission has been launched by vets to save five lions from an illegal zoo in the city of Razgrad in Bulgaria. I've never been to Bulgaria, but um, it's probably another place that I'd like to go to at some stage. Um, uh, read it, uh, jump in a paragraph. The zoo is owned by the city, which I thought was quite interesting because they're mentioning it was an illegal zoo. Um so Four Paws, which is an international animal welfare organisation, convinced the mayor of Razgrad to intervene. The veterinary team provided care to all the lions and sterilised two male lions to prevent further inbreeding. And going down the page on their little um, article there, due to lack of physical exercise, Four Paws says that the older lions suffered from severe spinal problems and that it is likely the cubs will too. A three-year-old lion who was checked over in the nearby zoo, I presume they moved them to that nearby zoo, was found to have sand in his bladder and fibrosis of the kidneys. He's probably spent too long on the beach, I think, sand in his bladder. Um, only one lion will remain in Razgrad until local authorities have decided whether to shut down the zoo. 
Until then, Four Paws will be keep a close eye on the well-being of the cats as well as that of the other zoo inhabitants. Um, there's a few other paragraphs that I, I've skipped over there, but um, reason why I have this little article on the news item um, is um, I don't know about you, Mark, but when when especially when our kids were growing up, um, I used to visit every little zoo. Or, or little petting zoo or, or, or anything to do with animals when we're on holidays. And, gee, I tell you what, there's some pretty crazy little zoos out there, isn't there? Um, and and I'm not just talking about here in Australia. So we get some funny little um, zoos and, and one which I'm trying not to mention the zoo was one we um, visited in um, – in a little island off Australia and um, we got, had quite an experience with, with a particular animal that we'll be talking about with the next news item. Mark, what do you think about some of these little zoos? I mean, they struggle to survive and I think part of the problem is with with um, small zoos or, or, or um, nature parks is that um, um, they struggle to pay their staff and they struggle to feed their animals. So I think... And, we end up with some of these parks that are open that shouldn't be open because you you go and look through them and, and the quality of the enclosures for these animals is, is really poor and the welfare aspects of it is certainly a concern with them. Um, and I just feel sorry for everybody that, you know, the staff are often very poorly pay, paid in these um, um, small smaller zoos. Um, um, not all the time, but certainly some of them. Um, the animals um, don't look in very good shape and um, I think the owners are certainly not making a fortune and I think it doesn't really give a very good impression to the public when they're going through these little animal parks and they're looking at these mangy looking animals. Um, um, so yeah, I don't know what the answer to it is apart from potentially closing some of them down. What's your thoughts on it, mate? I think um, you're exactly right, Brendan. I think um some of these these smaller zoos where maybe they've um, been extended from someone's sort of private collection, their hobby, and and uh, and they just get a little bit bigger and they think they can spend a whole lot of time, um, maybe make some money from gate takings. Um, these things never pan out that way, and um, and uh, every one of the um, successful um, smaller fauna parks or zoos that I know of have had to be significantly bankrolled by um, some uh, external source of money, and um, and so I think those ones that are that don't have that um, uh, financial input from outside, they do, as you say, struggle, and it's not. Um, uh, um, not that I'm directly saying any of the people that work there or own them have ill intent. It's just that they uh, get caught um, compromising because they don't have enough money. So I think you're probably right. I think some of them need to uh, have the doors closed on them and uh, and, and maybe some consolidation or um, uh, until they get a certain threshold critical mass, um, some financial support that they uh, may maybe not the best thing for many animals. Yeah, and I th I think the vast majority of those people who end up owning those go into it with the right right intentions. You know, they 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 might start with a few animals and think, gee, I I, I want to um I want to educate people a, a little bit more about some some particular um, species or, or group of species, but it sort of snowballs from there, and then it is their business and their livelihood, and they they really struggle, and then they may even try and reach out for. For a star animal that you know, a lion or a tiger or something like that, that might pull the punters in and, and get more visitors, and yet it's a, a species that shouldn't be kept by them, and 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 um, um, they have no experience with keeping them, and then it just um, ends up being a pretty sad tale for everybody. Um, yeah. So, but vet saves lions in Bulgaria, um, which is um, maybe a maybe a little bit of a feel-good um, story, but it just made me think about some of these smaller zoos and the problems that we have with dealing with them. Um, the next news story, Mark, is yours, and that is the magpie is voted Australia's favourite bird. Um, tell me a bit about this story. Well, I felt like reporting on the um, BirdLife Australia, the, uh, the our uh, um, organisation that uh, is a bird conservation organisation, and the Guardian, the online newspaper, got together and and had a um, an online poll, and and I'm pretty pleased to 
report to our, all our listeners that the official winner is the Australian magpie. Um, but I've got some inside gossip. So I'm, uh, I completely report this as entirely rumour. Um, there may be no fact involved in this story, but I have it on good authority that the, uh, the poll is compromised like many online polls, um, the story goes that uh, the second place getter, the Australian white ibis, um, um, often known in media circles these days as the Sydney bin chicken, um, that that bird made an early surge, um, quite surprising early surge, and uh, and um, on investigation, it uh, it was. Um, it was uh, suspected that some um, clever young, uh, clever young people, you know, these IT smarties, have um, racked up some uh, bots and uh, and overloaded the votes on the bin chicken, um, and so some. I understand that some uh, some things were put in place to limit that, um, and then um, my understanding is that an unusually large number of votes came in from um, your neck of the woods in Melbourne. Um, for the magpie, and uh, the suspicion is that um, some Collingwood supporters were trying to subvert the process of genuinely identifying Australia's bird of the year to uh, um, maybe come, you know, um, highlight some of the other um, uh, newsworthy items in 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 uh, in the city of Melbourne. But the upshot of it all is that, uh, despite whatever um, skullduggery went on. The Australian magpie was the uh, was voted the the uh, winner, um, and um, and my favourite um, the uh, azure kingfisher, um, which I voted for many times, um, didn't even make the top ten. What was uh, your favourite? What was your favourite well, bird? My favourite bird. Well, um, well, a question before that: Does this poll occur every year, Mark, or is this the first time? It's the first time, but my understanding is that um, it's set to be an annual institution. Okay. Um, yeah, my favourite bird. Well, um, my favourite crazy bird would have to be the emu um, because there's not much upstairs with an emu. I think all the emu has inside that little head of its or brain, if we can call it that, is two little cogs. One's connected to one leg and one's connected to the other leg, and that's about all emus have. And, um, um, yeah, I love emus. They're, they're, they're silly, um, silly animals. Um, and I had a little bit to do, the, do with them uh, both when I was a zoo vet and both when um, I was working for a wildlife park um, um, as a consultant as well. But, yeah, I've got a bit of a soft soft spot for the emu um, as far as being a, a, a bit of a crazy um, um, favourite bird of mine, um, I suppose as far as the most prettiest favourite bird. Um, 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 oh, I'll get back to you on that. Let me have a think about it and I'll give you something by the end of the podcast, okay? But while we're, while we're on the topic of birds, I'm going to jump over to um, news topic number three, and that's pigeons' brains. Um, so it follows on very well from um, our little um, uh, voting of Australia's favourite bird. And this um, article, I think, was in the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit about it. Um, and um, yeah, I just love this one for the for the, some of the comments they make in it. Um, it reminds me of the Jonathan story that we had a week or two ago. Um, Pigeons' brains might be tiny, but Einstein would be impressed. Is the headline? Bird brain pig pigeons understood concept of space and time long before the birth of Albert Einstein, scientists have shown. And, um, you know, that's a big headline grabber first sentence there, I think. And I'm going to jump down to why they talk about this in that in, in a series of experiments, pigeons were shown a static horizontal line on a computer screen and had to judge its length or about or the, or the amount of time it was visible for. And, you know, it's probably not something I'd think about testing for in a pigeon if, if I wanted to set up a study for a pigeon showing them a computer screen and showing us a static horizontal line for them. But, however, the birds correctly worked out that the longer lines had longer duration and also lines that were visible for longer were longer in length. What this means is that the pigeon appears to use a common area of the brain to judge space and time. 
and do not process the con- process the concepts separately, said the researchers. Einstein also saw space and time as a non-separate, <laughs> coming up with a revolutionary no- notion of a single space-time continuum. There you go. There's the link. <laughs> Um, let's let's um, jump down here to another paragraph. Um, the cognitive prowess of birds is now deemed to be ever closer to that of both human and non-human primates, says lead scientist Professor Edward Wasserman from the University of Iowa, who spent four decades studying intelligence in pigeons, crows, baboons, and other animals. Those avian nervous systems are capable of far greater achievements than the pejorative term bird brain would suggest, he says. Um, And let's jump down a little bit more. Yeah, (laughs) I was just talking about the test in there. Um, If they correctly reported the length or duration of the line by pecking one of four visual symbols, they received a food reward. Um, the tests then became trickier with the researchers introducing additional line lengths that were presented for shorter or longer lengths of time. And the findings were reported in a paper in the Journal of Current Biology. What do you think of that, Mark? I, I love the segue, the jump from um, uh, from the space and time in a pigeon's brain to um, the concepts Albert Einstein came up with that's probably not the first direction i would have headed in but um that's probably why i'm not doing the study yes and that's why um we're not um journalists in that particular paper i don't think as well <laughs> although it's a pretty reputable um um if it was from the sydney morning herald originally i, I don't it's certainly not a not a trash magazine um oh, yeah so that down, was going uh, down Going downhill, Brendan. SMH is, it? is it? going downhill. Oh, okay. Well, I don't. Um, I don't obviously um, read SMH myself, being from down south in Melbourne. So there we go. Pigeon brains and Einstein. Something to think about. So, um, news item number four. Um, I think that's you, Mark. And you're going to talk about a, a bit of an Australian item here. But the end of the special licensing system for exports. Um, what's the story with that? Well, the um, Department of Agriculture and Water Resources has um, has very recently changed the requirements for um, accreditation of registered veterinarians preparing companion animals for export. So I don't know whether um, – I think everyone's pretty much aware that um, for companion animals to uh, – be sent overseas, they um, have to undertake a physical examination uh, by an accredited vet and uh, and receive the appropriate um, treatments. Often that includes, depending on what part of the world they're going to, they might need um, parasite control or rabies vaccine. Um, though that particular program, the accreditation program for Australian vets, is no longer a requirement for veterinarians to prepare companion animals for export. Um, it's a little bit of a. Um, oh, I, I don't mind saying that it's a. The department's, you know, obviously it's an administrative change um, that uh, uh, the way that governments work in this regard is, um, you know, all cost recovery and cost benefit analysis and they've obviously decided that the accreditation program wasn't uh, delivering the benefits that um, that it uh, that it um, the cost of setting it up was um, just would make justifiable um, but um, but I think there's quite a one of the vets who I work with dr. Alex has um, been planning to do this for some time and I think there's some effort involved in doing the accreditation program but um, those vets who uh, previously have done it um, uh, they'll just be the same as all of us now so that re- that accreditation is no longer required. And we'll stick, there's a link, the uh, Department of Agriculture, the Federal Department of Agriculture has a um, link that we'll stick in our, um, in our, on our webpage and on the um, links to the podcast. The one important thing about this bit of news is um, that uh, 
there's no change to uh, the accredited veterinarians program for the Australian government um, for livestock export. There's still that uh, you still require a special qualification. Uh, you need to have done a special course to be able to do that one. But as far as uh, dogs and cats going overseas, um, all registered veterinarians are now able to do that and uh, can purchase the appropriate uh, vaccines to ensure that uh, that can be done. Yes, I think I can remember doing the accreditation program. It was probably the second one there for livestock for export, and um, I think it was an online course several years ago. And all I all I seem to do is annually or every two years or so pay my pay my fee to the relevant department um, for that. And I don't know whether I've ever had to check or, or do any um, export um, of stock um, checks for um, for um, overseas or import or export. Um, I do the odd dog and cat for, for travel within state and sometimes overseas as well. But, yeah, I think it's a good thing, less red tape. So, yeah, I think it will, um, um, as far as vets are concerned, I think um, we'll find it um one less thing to worry about as far as we, you know, you're drowning in pa- paperwork sometimes as it is, yeah. So, yeah, so I think that's a good a good move and, and by the sound of it, um, it was probably more effort than, um, than than it was worth for the for the um, department as well to administer it yeah and I think that's how some a lot of that red tape I think that's a lot of that's uh, how it you know there's a thought that maybe if we regulate this and there's a cost recovery system in place that it might be self-funding but I think often it ends up not being that way so um, it's probably a good thing the department's had a a, a bit of a um, review and and assessed how it's going and uh, made changes that as you say remove the those regulations um, and red tape and make it a little bit easier. Yes, yes, no, good. That's a that's a good news story. There we go, all in one. My my next um, bit of news, Mark, is something that now that we spoke off air beforehand, that you were heading down to Melbourne for a bit of a visit around the holiday period, and hopefully we'll be able to catch up when you're down here. Um, um, I'll um, introduce you to a couple of the spots where I've. Um, where I found that do a really good magic coffee. Have, have you had a magic coffee before, Mark? I have not had a magic coffee. Well, you know, except for those ones that, you know, that um, there was some well, pretty magic would, coffees. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, um, yeah, well, the magic coffee is a particular type of coffee and, and supposedly, um, although looking look on the, on Dr. Google and, and Mr. Mr. Internet, um, it may not have originated in Melbourne down here, but it's certainly a, a well-renowned um, coffee type in, in, in Melbourne for the last few years. And um, um, I was put onto it by, by our hipster friend, um, Tristan, who you know very well, who, who probably denies a hipster. Um, and what is a magic? Well, a magic is basically a, it's a double ristretto shot um, with a little bit of milk in there. So a half or, or um, three quarter full flat white with a double shot in there. So what's um, another way of putting it? It's a little bit like a, a flat white or, or um, with a lot less milk or a long macchiato with a with a little bit more milk in there and I must admit that it's sort of what I tend to make at home myself with with my one of three coffee machines I have at home as you know I like my coffee <laughs> um so I've found that it's a really good thing to do to head out to um, the coffee shops um, locally or anywhere um, here in, in the Melbourne suburbs. And the first thing I will do with any cafe is I ask, can I please have a magic? And it's a really good indicator of whether or not the coffee is any good there because if they just look at you blankly, then you know that they don't know how to make coffee at all. Um, if they say, sure, I can make a magic, then you could say, oh, no, I don't want a magic and just give me a latte or, or macchiato or, or whatever. Um, and you know that they can probably um, make a few different types of coffee. So it's a pretty good indicator um, of, I think, um, and, I've, and I've been doing it, um, 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 this process pretty regularly for the last um, few months um, going 
into places and saying, can you make me a magic? Um, you've got to be careful where you say it and what time of night you say it if you're, if you're out late and you've been to um, a, a nightclub or something like that because you might get into trouble. If you ask somebody for a magic, they might, might want something a little bit different than that than a double ristretto shot, uh, three-quarter full flat white, Mark. Um, so, yeah, it's something I'll, I'll take you out to a couple of the coffee shops near me and we'll, we'll have a magic or two together as we record it. I think we. I'm, I'm talking, talking um, um, as thinking as I'm talking here. I think we should do a little podcast um, at one of these little cafes um, that we'll record and publish as a bit of a special. How does that sound? Sounds perfect to me. Sounds really good. Um, it, I'm, I'm very keen to try. As you would well know, Newcastle's has a Newcastle where I come from has a history of being a little bit of an industrial town, a little bit of a steel city. Um, and just as the uh, industry's left, um, it's been replaced by uh, you know the uh, wonderful coffee culture and um, uh, boutique shops and whatnot. So I'm keen to see how how closely our, our ramping up um, coffee culture in Newcastle has approached that wonderful um, uh, peak of coffee culture in Melbourne. Um, I'll be trying the uh, Can I Have a Magic in a couple of – and I hope I don't get um, – well, not too many of those strange looks that you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so just be careful where you do it, especially if you head out to sort of west of Sydney, for instance. Um, I just just be careful. Maybe just ask for a um, for a. Um, a flat white um, out there, Mark. Okay, so our last news story, Mark, is um, one for you. And I think, it well, this is one very close to home, isn't it? And um, the title of this news story is Venomous Creatures at Sugarloaf Animal Hospital, which is your clinic. Um, what's going on, Mark? Well, I was really excited. Um, as you know, I stalk many Facebook pages and um, uh, um, and I'm always keen to pick up on odds and sods. Um, the Australian Veterinary Network um, uh, um, often has uh, really interesting um, stories, uh, current topics in Australian, um, in Australian veterinary life. And Rianne Cope... Um, a renowned veterinary toxicologist um, has started doing some wonderful posts, some wonderful educational posts um, on that particular Facebook page. I recommend it to anyone. But I was really interested in this particular post because Rianne uh, has listed um, uh, um, five Invert of uh, five arthropod species which have been associated with uh, um, toxic syndromes in pet animals. So I'll just quickly tell you what they are. Um, the uh, one of the bull ant species in Australia, um, the black rock scorpion, Eurodacus manicatus, um, the devil crab, um, uh, the Ocrogaster luna for caterpillars. And the whistling spiders from far north Queensland, Selenotypus plumipes. Now, the reason that this struck me as interesting is that we have had um, envenomations from a couple of those species um, in uh, companion animals that we've had to deal with, but we've also had um, three of those species as patients at the Sugarloaf Animal Hospital. Um, so it is a little bit of a, um, uh, you know, if there, if there was one hospital that this post was particularly pertinent to, um, then I think our one was it. We have clients who um, have ant, the, the, speaking of um, subcultures, we have clients who have uh, um, ant farms who have, uh, who've collected um uh, 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 alate queens and then built them up into ant farms. Um, and uh, we've definitely had um, some questions about how to manage those um, when they get into trouble. Um, we also have, um, uh, we had one famous uh, surgical procedure to do on a selenotypus, one of the big Australian uh, bird-eating spiders or whistling spiders. And we even attempted a, um, on the, um, black rock scorpion, um, which give birth to live young and often have trouble in that process. Dystochia in this species is not uncommon. And we did attempt a, um, a, a um, caesarean type procedure on one of these. So um, it just struck me as a really, uh, 
what is what intersectional um, news topic where we both um, have them as causes uh, of problems and also patients in their own right. So how did that um, so-called cesarean go, Mark? It went really badly. <laughs> but the, 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 um, the really interesting thing about the scorpions is that um, the young, we got the young scorpions out alive, um, but they very, um, it, would, it would appear, they very quickly need to feed on um, some of the proteins that are on the, the, um, the chitin of the exoskeleton of the mother. It's a form of... Well, I suppose you'd almost think of it as uh, insect milk, um, but um, if they don't get that um, version of insect colostrum, then their survival is seriously compromised. Um, but um, but yeah, it was a um, a learning experience, um, and uh, and but unfortunately, not a particularly successful one for the patient in that case. Ah, very good, very good. Um, I I must admit I can't remember the last um, spider consultation I have seen. Um, I have 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 seen a few in the past, but gee, it's been a long time since I've seen one. Um, yeah, so I look forward to giving you a call, Mark, when I have a um, to stoke you in a spider, and um, I hope you're on um, redial. Um, I'll have you on redial, ready to um, answer my questions <laughs> and, and giving me the best um, methods of um, cremating a spider and providing the ashes back to the owner. Um, so I think we should jump into. Oh, well, that's enough news. Gee, we've done lots of news this week, haven't we? Um, I'm looking forward to a bit of light on your product review, Mark. Um, what have you got for us? Well, bear with me, Brendan, while I return to um, – the, the, you will know from my um, the, our recent talks that I was away um, taking some photographs of, uh, of birds in the Capity Valley. And um, while I was there – I uh, did take the time to um, not only take photographs in the day, and I had some like wonderful um, uh, opportunities to get Regent honey eaters and um, and uh, um, crested shrike tits, some excellent photographs. Um, but I also took the time to go out at night um, and see if I could find some frogs to photograph, um, uh, night jars, um, so uh, po- um, some possums and, um, and of course, the macropods and wombats that were wandering around the place. Um, and one of the things I thought I would quickly talk about is the torch that we used um, because these make a huge difference to my experience of uh, wandering around in the evening. Um, and speaking of subcultures, as I was before, what I, since I've started, um, uh, you know, searching out uh, maybe the best um, uh, uh, lights to use in at night, um, I've uncovered this whole um, internet community of people who uh, uh, um, com- compare and contrast. Um, different lights and strengths and power sources. Um, there's a, um, a within the, the subculture of, uh, of um, illumination at night, um, there's um, police and law enforcement and military. Um, there's hunting um, aficionados, but um, there's a lot of um, wildlife um, spotters, um, uh, just like I was, um, and uh, having these good, high-quality torches makes for a much, much more pleasant experience. Um, so, I was so what's to the torch, Mark? Yep. <laughs> tell you about the wolf eyes tactical torch. Um, there's a um, particularly the reason this one is such a good one um, is that you can switch the beam to quite a powerful red light, and uh, and obviously that disturbs those nocturnal animals far less, um, but still gives you excellent vision and highlights their presence and allows you to uh, maybe even spot some eye shine and identify where they are. Um, so it's a uh, wolf eyes tactical torch. It's the um, uh, X beam uh, red LED hunting torch, uh, red wild. I mean the red wildlife torch, um, and um, and I know that's the torch that's used by quite a number of um, owl and nighttime photographers, and um, it made a complete difference to the nights that I went out looking for wildlife. So I recommend it highly. 
the tactical beam wildlife torch. I mean, um, what more could you want, Mark? And and what's the rough recommended retail price? How much did you end up paying for this tactical? Oh, torch? it's hundred and sixty dollars. That's a lot of torch. Yeah. Um, how long does the batteries last for? <laughs> um, generally, the batteries about uh, um, just over an hour. Um, uh, but um, but. Geez, it uh, the um, and and this is a feature of that particular subculture. The the uh, you know um, the how bright it is and how much it lights everything up, and um, that's a real strong point in uh, talking about torches. But this is a uh, um, uh, uh, really provides a nice bright red beam that um, allows you to see these animals without distressing them. Yes, yes, it reminds me of. A a laser, um, a small laser pointer I have, which I was given as a gift um, after a speaking gig, and um, which I performed overseas, um, and I um, brought it back into Australia here, and I think because um, there's a limit on the um, the power of of um, little um, laser torches, isn't there? And I think it's one is it one milliwatt or something? You're exactly like that? right, one milliamp. Yeah. That, that you're allowed to have, and and this one has um, vastly um, more than that um, in it. And um, yeah, I've had some interesting um, times and interesting fun um, shining this torch outside. That they're, they're pretty amazing torches. I think it's a green um, um, laser, um, and yeah, it shines for you know um, hundreds and hundreds of meters there. And um, we just happened to be in the flight path of. Um, <laughs> Planes that come across to to land in Melbourne, and I must admit, um, after reading some of the stories of people who've been caught um, shining um, lasers um, into pilots' eyes, um, I have had no inc- inclination to try and do that to a plane going across. But um, it's um, been great shining it across the parks um, locally here. Yeah, and it's in a in a great little presentation box. I haven't had it out for a while. It just reminded me of. Um, um, powerful torches and lasers there, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's one of my favourite little little mementos from um, um, from a from a talk I gave overseas at, um, a few years ago. Yeah. So, yeah, um, good um, good review there, Mark. So, uh, you, well, you um, you're the one who started it. You have to tell me um, what is your <laughs> score out of ten um, for the torch. Well, I'd, I'd give it a eight point one. Eight point one. I don't know about these point one bits, but yeah, um, and um, eight point one. Yeah, well, um, I think everything. We we need to review a couple of lemons. Um, a couple of things we we, we think have been, aren't haven't haven't worked well. Yeah, we have really been coming up with um the things you know obviously because we like them. They we tend to uh, be talking about the things that we enjoy, but we do have to come up with a couple of lemons. We have to, that's one of the things about experience, the things that we've done that haven't worked. We want to try and pass on that experience so that um, other people aren't necessarily making the same mistakes that we do. Yes, and I'm sure we'll be able to do that in um, in a little Christmas special in a, in a week or two. Um, I've just jumped onto the Wolf Eye Tactical Torches website Um yeah, there's some pretty um, interesting stuff on that website, isn't there? There's a lot of um, um, sni- oh, here's a Sniper Two Pro, um, genuine police issue. There's the Dingo, um, two lenses in a kit. Gee, I, I see why you've spent a lot of time on this. Um, <laughs> um, looking at these tactical things, the Ranger Fifty Six Three Hundred Meter Throw, USB rechargeable tape switch, adjustable focus, adjustable output um, torch, and. Um, Let's have a look. Police, military, hunting. Um, yeah, there's some interesting thing there. Yeah, the crocodile's apparently really popular. I don't know what that one is, but yeah, there you go. So we'll put a link to that in our show notes, the um, wolfeyes.com.au, I think it is, yeah. Okay, enough news and enough reviews. Um, I suppose I better do a review next week because I think you've done the last couple, haven't you? Um, so our main topic this week is rat care. Um, um, we thought that um, for those people not seeing too many rats in, in private practice, um, we might just summarise a little bit about general rat care. And, and 
I think we should just talk a little bit about what we recommend to our clients um, as far as um, health and preventative health for their rats. Um, and I, I think I listed three or four main topics there. And um, the first one I had there is diet. Um, um, I'll mention what I tend to recommend to my clients with um, for feeding their rats, Mark, and then you might want to chime in about what you recommend to, to your clients with it because I see a... A fair number of fat rats um, in the practice um, with with the clients, and I think the difficulty there is that um, when I ask new clients, um, what do they feed in their rats? They say we're feeding them a rat mix um, or a pelleted sort of food, but not only may they be feeding the wrong thing. And I, I, my recommendations, I don't feed any mixes at all to to rats because. Being a mix, they'll just pick out their favourite things and um, often it's the fatty things like the sunflower seeds and then they'll, the owner will then think, oh, gee, he likes the sunflower seeds, so I'll feed more sunflower seeds. And they just fill up the whole bowl with the sunflower seeds and we get a fat rat. Um, but when I quiz them, what, you know, how many grams of pellet or, or seed do you feed your rat? And they'll say, I don't know. I just fill up the bowl. So um, I think it's really important that we need to get clients to maybe think about weighing how much food they're feeding out or putting out for their rats um, to try and avoid obesity in their pet rodents, um, but also the quality of the food. And there's two or three brands of, of, of pelleted food here in Australia, and um, I won't mention all of them. Um, because we've got a lot of listeners from overseas and, and they may not have these brands over there anyway that, that are quite good. And, and I really stress to the clients that even if you are feeding one of these better quality pelleted foods to their rats, that they only feed a limited supply of those pellets. And I, I usually typically mention or recommend that they have two feed bowls for their rat. Um, one feed bowl has that limited supply of the pellets um, that we've worked out as the the ideal amount or, or grams to feed that particular rat or rats in the enclosure and then they have another food bowl and um, I suggest they put a, a huge range, range almost ad lib, um, unlimited probably, um, amount of um, vegetables and, and lots of leafy greens. So they have a, a big bowl of, of veggies there of various um, sorts, whatever's in season, um, maybe a tiny bit of fruit as well, um, and go crazy with that. And and um, I think two things happen there is that it encourages them, them those rats to eat more of the the variety of foods that they should be eating and, and a variety of um, other foods and vegetables there, but it's also giving them something to do. Um, and one of the other topics that I had listed for the general rat care is environmental enrichment. So even if that rat of that particular client never likes capsicum, for instance, or, or, or snow peas or, or, or whatever herb that they've got, in the, in the fridge or in the house at the time, still offer it to that rat in that um, in that bowl with the other vegetables, because it also gives them something to play with and throw around and to rip apart. And you never know; they might start to like that particular vegetable um, that's been offered to them after they have a bit of a taste of it. So it's providing environmental enrichment as well as providing food item. So that's what I tend to say as a general. Um, scope with, with with what I recommend for feeding um, the pet rats of my um, the clients that come in, especially those new clients. Um, do you have a similar process, Michael? What, what's, do you have any other sort of tips about um, um, getting a, a decent diet into the rats? I mean, I, I, I generally talk about rats being opportunistic omnivores is what i what i what i say they eat they they'll eat all sorts of stuff and and um I have clients that I really struggle to get them to not feed um, lots of leftover food and pizza and biscuits and chocolate and all those sorts of things. I don't know whether you have the same same issues with your um, rat clients, um, Mark. Definitely the same sort of problems. And I think we're going to have to have a uh, future podcast which um, in which we maybe the title can be Brendan and Mark Disagree and we're just going to list the things because <laughs> there's not many of them. It'll be a short podcast um, it, without a doubt. 
um, uh, obesity is a, a really significant problem and um, the strategy of uh, there's a lot of great research which uh, um, shows that uh, rats that are um, lean um, uh, they, they live longer and they have uh, fewer health problems over their life um, and so we are just like you we're keen to try and help people manage um, caloric intake um, the, the, the good thing compared to many other of our species um, that we get to deal with um, the, the, the nutritional requirements of um, these animals have largely been worked out and so there is a number of um, those excellent um, high-quality pellets that are well-based in science that um, are a great backbone for the, um, the, the, the nutrition of these rats. Um, and as you do, um, uh, we recommend that they look for a bunch of high-fibre um, veggies. We tend to steer them away from fruits, um, uh, try and get them to have activity foods. Um, what, what, so one of the questions I've got for you, Brendan, is what sort of volume are you, um, what sort of number of grams, what would be a typical number of grams that you would uh, um, be, be suggesting per rat? Uh, okay, now you put me on put me on the spot here. It's not much. It's probably fifty to hundred grams, something like that, depending on what well, particular. In that's interesting because yeah, I would. I was going to say that um, uh, where I'm regularly, um, uh, you know, I regularly shock people by the amount we, you know, we're generally suggesting something in the range of twenty five to thirty five grams of uh, of food would is enough to um, of these pelleted foods is enough to um, maintain body weight, um, and so that's only just a little bit over a tablespoon, and uh, and people are often offering like you said, multiple times that. And uh, so I think um, uh, um, it's not a bad thing to just be a little bit on the, the um, uh, uh, cautious side and offer less rather than more. What about um, uh, act, what what sort of activity? I've, I've just um, we've been approached by a couple of our clients recently um, to uh, the the um, uh, gummer bones, the nylar bones, the the, the uh, teeth exercising things that are made of um, uh, indigestible, non toxic nylon. They've read those on forums um, and uh, they've been offering those to their rats. What what are your thoughts on that, Brendan? Yeah, um, I think the difficulty with, with some of those ones are that they'd be good for them if they chew on them, but I often find that they don't chew on the ones that we want them to chew on that aren't <laughs> particularly going to put the weight on. So they, they may chew on the, you know, the what's the ones in Australia here? We've got the dentist sticks and those sort of things, which, which they'll take quite readily, but I think you then have to cut down on the... The other food items because they're quite um, they're going to um, fair amount of calories in there compared with the ones that don't have it um, you know virtually have no um, zero calories in them so so it's tricky um, um, I, I mean if we're jumping onto environmental enrichment here as part of that I I, I think it's I I try and suggest to clients that they have lots of um, lots of tunnels and, and and boxes and and some of them can be just destructible things or chewable things like cardboard tunnels and, and cardboard cones, etc., um, that the rats can run around with and play with and rip up and chew, um, um, even even sticks, um, bits of wood in there too and, and leaves, um, you know, dry, 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 dry branches, those sorts of things that they, they'll sometimes chew on them if you put different different sort of types of those sticks and things. Um and um, ones that I'll probably start recommending shortly because we've got them in for some of the as treats for over the Christmas period for the for the rabbits and the guinea pigs are some of the um, um, apple apple tree twigs um, those types yes. of things as well. Um, so um, I must admit I haven't recommended them to a, a rat client yet, but um, I'd be sort of going down the track of trying to get um, a variety of those potentially non toxic type things, but. I think the difficulty difficulty is getting them to eat the ones that we'd like them to eat that that may have an effect on on those teeth. Although, you know, to be honest, I I don't think um, I don't think we 
we need to really um, encourage the the rats to chew just because of dental hygiene that much because um, I, I see a lot of rats that have had no chewing throughout the whole life and yet the teeth don't have um, any particular you know severe dental problems like we might see with a with um, some of our other species like our guinea pigs or our rabbits that have um, dental issues um, if they're not chewing the right things so um, but it's good for certainly good for the environmental enrichment with them so yeah um, I, I think um, the uh, in, in, environmental okay. enrichment is like the other, the environmental enrichment is the other side of the coin, you know, the caloric intake and the caloric output. Um, and I think um, all our best um, rat clients are paying attention to both arms of that to try and manage the the, uh, the weight issues that um, rats potentially can have. I've had a little bit of a change in in my my opinion and I'm keen to, to get your thoughts on this, Brendan, I um, for a long time I did not recommend exercise wheels for um, for rats, um, and I did this because um, I thought that the use of exercise wheels, the um, the focus on exercise wheels, was a um, you know was a um, a stereotypy that um, if they didn't have enough other things to do, then they would become obsessed with these. Um, exercise wheels but i've read some um interesting reports lately that show that um that uh, there is quite a considerable drive in rats that don't have any reason to have a stereotypy that have only been recently introduced to them um that it uh, that actually um is a little bit of a quality of life enhancing um, feature of their enclosure that uh, that exercise wheels are, um, are something that they will seek out consciously seek out um, and uh, go through some um, some uh, you know negative they'll they'll choose to go and do that sort of thing um, even when um, even when there might be some discouragement to doing it um, so I've, I've been um, more cautiously not um, singing their praises but we've been getting some of our overweight rats to to uh, have exposure to exercise wheels to um, to uh, encourage more activity um, and hopefully provide um, uh, an additional level of environmental enrichment have you seen um, any negative effects of exercise wheels Brendan Oh, sorry, I had my mic on. Yeah, I had my mic on uh, <laughs> mute there for a minute while I was taking a sip of um, water. Um, yes, I, I have seen um, some of those reports saying that the rats potentially may enjoy them. I think is what you're saying that they yeah. seek out these wheels and and seem to like going round and round and round. Um, yeah, it's pretty similar to me going round and round every day <laughs> at work um, with the same thing. It's that Groundhog Day thing, isn't it, Mark? Yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, I, I'm not sure is is my answer to that, and and um, um, I'm not not recommending them um, to clients, and and um, I'm I, if if we if I have a discussion with a rat client about the use of wheels, I'd say yeah, put one in there, but um, make sure that we have all the other options in there as well. So lots of things to play with and throw around, and tunnels, and constantly change things. You know, um, we and I'm guilty of it that we tend to with all these unusual pets or all, all of the species, we tend to look at it from a hygiene perspective and think. Let's let's make the enclosure sterile and easy to clean, and use F10 or whatever cleaning products we we recommend. And and the animal's in a hospital cage then, and it's not enjoying life as a rat or as a rabbit or as a guinea pig or as a as a reptile, amphibian bird, etc. Um, and and they're not having a good time. So I think it's really important, and, and I'm guilty of it all the time still, even though I'm trying to change my ways in that um, it's that balance between having a, an environment which is fun for that particular animal, um, but but we can then still manage to clean it when we need to. Um, and with these rat enclosures, it, it's, it's making it fun by constantly changing things. Um, and when we do a clean, um, I'm increasingly with all the all the species of unusual pets that that we see at the practice. I'm recommending to the client that keep keep a little bit of the the smell from the enclosure um, and 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 put that back in the enclosure. So for a rat or a mouse, um, especially with mice, I love. Um, 
making a little nest there with a tissue block box and 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 um, having their little little bedroom there so grabbing that um, mousy sort of um, tissue or, or, or paper and um, keeping that and when you clean the enclosure putting it back in there so they've got some nice homely smells still in there and not just completely disinfecting the whole enclosure and the same story with the rats as well so so not getting rid of that whole ratty smell and and um, because it'll probably stress out the rat if they don't have those ratty smells and the pheromones um, still in there for them. So Dan, yeah, now I've been... got, I've yes. got another. I have another question about um, hygiene. It's um, uh, a good segue. I, I, I much like you, I've, I've um, often recommended to our clients that they be fastidious, um, particularly because of the, you know, the risk of transfer of some of those diseases to people. Um, but um, but I've come around to thinking that um, that uh, a well um, enriched life with lots of activities probably for, provides the rats with um, uh, much better immunity and they're less likely to have problems like that. One of the real um, dilemmas I've had is the whole process of coprophagy um, where um, our um, our rabbits have a set process and a set time to do this and so the the um, the the pellets that they produce can be cleaned up because they directly pass the the uh, digested stool that they need to eat um, uh, early in the morning to their mouth, um, I understand that in the wild, rats um, uh, will consume a percentage of the, all of their daily intake um, is the stools of rats, um, and there are some nutrients that they get from uh, from those stools. Do you, do you um, uh, make mention of returning some droppings to the enclosure after the the, uh, the, after it's been cleaned out? Yeah, well, I think it's just part of having that little little um, little area, the little bedroom area, et cetera, and keeping um, a few of the little poos there for the, for the rat as well, yeah. So, um, and it's always, t- you know, the, the clients as well, I think, they're always tempted to, gee, I want to get rid of that ratty smell or that mousy smell for the enclosure, and they go crazy with the, the bleachers and that and then put the animal back in there and they... They seem frantic, you know, until they're till they're established their home again and yes. the nice sm- smells of their particular home again. And um, yeah, although when I come home, um, my um, here's a good segue. My wife um, Annie, she often says, "Have you seen a, a snake today? Have you seen a lizard today? Have you seen a turtle today?" And no matter how much I glove up um, when I'm seeing the reptiles, um, she knows she knows if I've seen a reptile that day. So um, I can't pull the reptile over her eyes there so she she knows if i've seen one so our house is it is it, has a is, it bit of, is it is it the sm- smile on your face or the smell on your hands yeah um i think it's the smell on my hands unfortunately <laughs> um, yeah that um that may be the day you know that, that, that sometimes I don't want to see a reptile that day because, yeah, I'd like to have a bit of a cuddle with my wife that night and that's probably not the night that I'll get the cuddle. And unfortunately, I see reptiles most nights, uh, most days at work. <laughs> so there you go. So, um, yeah, so environmental enrichment, we've got off track there a little bit, haven't we, Mark? Um, so the other, um, let's cover a couple of more topics of size, general rat care. The other big one's the desexing. And we certainly strongly recommend desexins in all our ratty patients, apart from non-breeding rats. Um, and the main reasons there, the summary there for for those who um, can't remember back from the vet school day or the or the vet student day or the their vet technician um, nurse um, um, lectures, is. Um, it drastically re- reduces the chance of the mammary tumours that we see very, very, very commonly in, in rats. And we we see those mammary tumours in the male rats as well, certainly less often than the females, but we do see them. So desexing drastically reduces that. I, I'm a firm believer that they probably live longer, the desex ones, um, um, than, than, the, than the non-desex ones. And the other big one that... that um, that we should talk about with with diseases of rats for a podcast at, at some stage is the pituitary neoplasms that we see with them. So the pituitary tumours um, have been shown to decrease um, percentage of them with the desex rats as well because of the whole influence of the hormones with those um, pituitary adenomas. Um, those um, yeah, which we won't go into detail here. So um, I strongly recommend the desexing. So with the females, we we 
um, basically routinely do the ovariectomies um, rather than the full ovariohysterectomies. So I'd be interested to see whether you've um, gone over to the ovariectomies um, and we'll talk about the details of that in our desex in rats and rodents and um, um, topic sometime in the future. But I'll, um, if you want to make a little comment on that in a sec, Mark. Um, and D6 in the boys too, and I do an open castration with the males. Yeah, so um, um, are you similar with that with your with your ratty D6 in Mark? Yeah, I followed. I think you did a wonderful presentation at one of the um, the uh, UPAV conferences on this exact topic, and uh, and that was the time we switched over to just ovariectomies, um, and uh, and they do seem to um, just be a little bit easier and quicker to do, and. Uh, um, and yeah, I, I, um, I think that um, that uh, same as you. I think those rats uh, desexed. They um, live longer and they have less stress in their life, and um, it's less worry for the owners. Um, and particularly those uh, the less incidents of tumours, which are often um, the uh, the um, you know the thing that uh, might be the the often people are bringing them to us to um, to. Uh, to treat those things, and if we can prevent them before they even take off, then that's a much better arrangement. Yes, and um, I think the fourth or the final topic we sort of had as far as general rat care advice um, for for vets who don't see them very often is the geriatric care. So we're seeing um, rats that are longer lived than they were um, previously. They might be beyond their use-by date um, compared with a wild rat. And um, I um, see a few rats that get to four and um, a few that get a little bit older than that. So we, we start to see the, the geriatric conditions that we might see in other species. And the two two common ones that I see, apart from the the pituitary tumours and the ones that haven't been desexed are um, osteoarthritis in them um, and a large percentage of older rats we see with um, renal failure, with, with kidney failure with them as well. So we um, we um, often talk about this when the rats are only about one year of age to the client when we're doing our regular health checks and we, we encourage at least six monthly um, reviews of the um, rodents um, in our practice because they're aging pretty quickly and we start to introduce the subject of, of geriatric care fairly early on with these animals. Um, so we've, we've keyed up the clients about the fact that their rats aren't going to live very long and that they're a pretty short-lived species and they need to start looking out for the signs of um, these geriatric illnesses that we see commonly with them. And the one that ties in with that first topic is that diet one. Yeah, these obese ones um, certainly um, often really struggle and, and, and I find they don't live nowhere, they, they live nowhere near as long um, on average as the ones that are kept nice and lean and, 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 and keen and um, very active animals, yeah. Um, any um, comments or thoughts on that, Mark? We've had um, the the particularly a, a large proportion of our geriatric rats do show osteoarthritic change, and and it's one of the um, uh, the our experiences that um, they often respond really well to the pentasan polysulfate products, cartrophin or pentasan, um, and uh, and I feel we often make a big difference to their quality of life with. Uh, with the use of those drugs, and then obviously, depending on um, their their renal function, we might add non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs as well. But um, we've had excellent results with uh, pentasan and our elder, elderly rats. Yeah, um, you beat me to it. I was going to ask you what um, products and what medications seem to work, and um, guess what? Similar story with with what <laughs> what I find as well. Um, and I mean, at one stage, I was I'm trying to remember. I, I was um, trial in um, high doses of, I think, vitamin B, um, if I remember correctly. I might be incorrect because um, there was some rec um, interesting research paper in, in the laboratory scene about um, high doses of um, vitamin D pot potentiating um, pain in, in, in some rabbits, uh, in some rats with um, musculoskeletal conditions. Um, don't quote me there, and I know I've 
we're not going to edit this out. So um, hopefully I'm I'm correct with that. But yeah, um, the difficulty was it's quite painful. It was sort of mega doses given intramuscular, and I did use it um, um, in in a few rats a couple of years ago with with some of the clients. But I found it was a little bit cringy, um, cringeworthy watching those rats um, squirm while I was giving that vitamin um, B injection um, with them. So yeah, um, but yeah, we 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 um, um, the the pentazan type products um, 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 seem to work well with some of these osteoarthritic ones and and I find that um, just on clinical examination of them um, um, it it's pretty obvious it, that we have reduced range of motion and pain in some of these rats, especially in the hind limbs, in those stifles and those hips there. So, so it can be a, a, a condition that you can pick up fairly, fairly readily, or at least point towards it fairly readily, just on a, on a proper clinical examination of these geriatric patients. Yeah, um, they so regularly yeah, have. They regularly have like noticeably altered gait, and um, and they often don't groom quite as you know they they're generally fastidious with their their coat, and a lot of these osteoarthritic elderly rats um, are less well kept be kept because they um they don't groom as well, and um and that's one of the things that really stands out when you get the pentasan into them that all of a sudden they start reaching around and cleaning bits of them that obviously they couldn't easily reach before. So, so yes, I think um, uh, attention to – and the, as you said, Brendan, it's relatively – if you're alert to it, it is relatively easy to spot um, that uh, a, a three-year-old rat that's not grooming and has a bit of a waddle happening. Um, it's definitely worth thinking about uh, um, uh, treating them with some pentasan Yes, yes, and there are, there are a couple of other interesting um, uh, musculoskeletal conditions we see in the geriatric rats as well, so purely sort of muscular conditions as well, and the radiculoneuritis um, um, sort of syndrome in them as well, but we might cover that in another podcast when we talk about geriatric diseases of, of rats um, because I think we've already, yeah, we've come over an hour already and... Um, um, I think this is um, um, probably a, a good length for us. We've had a, a little bit of feedback from um, people saying that um, um, they enjoy the longer podcast of around about one hour, one hour because I think it fits in with with listening to the podcast on the way to work, um, half of it and then half of it on the way home again. Um, I'm in the fortunate situation of my clinic's only about 10, 15 minutes away from my home. So when I'm... Um, Listening to other podcasts, and I listen to a few podcasts. Um, I get home, and I, I just want to finish a podcast, and I'm enjoying it so much. I'm sitting in the car in the garage, um, or in the in the carport, and um, with the, with the engine running, and and um, my wife comes running out, thinking um, something's wrong, or I'm, I'm up to no good in that um, car with the engine running there, and I'm just wanting to finish the podcast. I'm enjoying, so yeah. Um, we, um, we've come to the end of the podcast again, Mark, and, um, um, I think, um, we've got another few topics that we can cover next time and we're getting, I'm very excited about our Christmas special. I've just thought of a couple of, um, veterinary sort of products, um, that, um, I can review and I'm, I'm, I'm We'll throw in a lemon there, one that I'll, I will give much less than a five out of 10. So, um, we can have a little bit of a laugh about it, a few different, um, a few different bad products that we've purchased over the years and I'm sure we've all done that um, but in the meantime um, I think Mark you need to head out to buy a magic just be very careful where you buy it and um, watch um, what expression you have on your face when you do ask for a magic um, and um, remember to visit patreon.com vet gurus um, if you want to support us and, and throw us a bone you know think about donating one dollar a month that would be fantastic then you can become a bug if you look on our um, patreon website or just go to our normal website vetgurus.com and you'll see the link saying help us um, and you can help us that way um, send us an email we haven't had too many emails um, and we'd love an email from you asking a question or, or we can give a shout out to you vetgurus at gmail.com um, and we'd like to say hi um, and and like to hear from our listeners so thanks for listening and we will see you again next week talk to you then.